I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell. And you are listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. This week on Pop It, we're on site at Worcester State University with Assistant Vice President for Human Resources, Payroll, Affirmative Action, and Equal Opportunity, Stacey Luster. We're discussing diversity, the gender pay gap, and advice for women looking to run for local office. And thank you as well to Unity Mike, who's in the house with us as always taking photos. So Stacy, I just started up an Instagram account for the Worcester Public Library Foundation, and we've had a lot of fun reaching out to different people and asking them what an impactful children's book was in their lives. So I was wondering if we could start by just asking you about a children's book that really made a difference in your life. Well, I think that um, my my thoughts about a children's book that made a difference was from a point of view of a parent mm-hmm. um, with reflections of my own childhood. So there was a, a publishing series called Jump the Sun that did retelling of traditional um, fairy tales, but put the characters as African-Americans. And so as you can imagine from a little girl's point of view, a little African-American girl's point of view, um, we all wanted to be Goldilocks. And, and so we would um, do things like put towels on our hair and do things to try to make ourselves have those golden locks. Um, and then at some point there's a little sadness that that's not a part of your reality. And so this particular publisher retells um, children's fairy tales. And so Goldilocks in this story, she has cornrows and she has golden um, beads on the ends of her cornrows and so that a, a child can still feel proud and and see themselves reflected in traditional fairy tales. Right, having that representation, I think, in children's literature especially is so important. And it is, it's true, I, I feel like we grew up, um, I grew up with a mom who was a teacher, and it, it's so hard, you have to really, at least in that, like when I was growing up in the 90s, you had to really search for books that showed, that were reflective of, you know, America as it is, and the world as it is, um, and for children to be able to see themselves in fiction is so important. So that sounds like a great series. Molly, you just yeah. picked out a book for me as well. Do you want to share what your pick was? <laughs> I did. I did. Um, it's a book called Hecate Peg. It is a fairy tale. It's very dark. Um, it's a story <laughs> of a witch who turns a bunch of children into food <laughs> that she's going to eat, and their mother has to figure out which child is what food based off of, you know, her knowledge of them and her love for them. And it's, yeah, it's it's a darker fairy tale. I loved it growing up. I liked it because it kind of scared me. Um, But yes, that was my choice. That was also one of my favorites growing up. I wonder if that has anything to do with my illustrious food writing career. I bet it does. There's in the the, the illustrations of the food. It's very like it's warm and it it looks it's yeah, it's great. So, Stacy, when you assumed your position at Worcester State in 2015, you told Worcester Magazine that Worcester State's strategic plan was focused on the things that were nearest and dearest to your heart, increasing the success of the diverse student base and growing that in the city of Worcester. Uh, you said it was critical also to economic development, and I'm curious what kind of progress you've made over the last four years. Well, I don't make any of the progress on my own. I am a part of a, a fantastic administration led by President Barry Maloney, who um, greeted me with a five-point um, strategic plan to do many things, which includes um, diversifying the student engagement in the classroom and diversifying the hiring and creating a positive campus climate. And so the, the demographics are the demographics. Um, 
um, the students um, of color in our community are, are the largest increasing growing demographic and so that we are we're seeing that enrollment increase within um, Worcester State University and what we're trying to do is to make sure that when they come here that they all see themselves reflected in the things that we do, um, in our values, um, in our workforce and um, we're making um, significant strides but it's, it's, it's a never-ending um, goal and so we continue to work on it in new ways involving different people on the campus and, and so it's, it's very positive. It's going very well. Now, I'm reminded a little bit, and Molly, I know you've been out of town in the nation's yes. capital, Yeah. but <laughs> yesterday, a group of youth in Worcester held a press release at City Hall, uh, or sorry, a press conference, Yes. and uh, one of our, our friends and collaborators is from the Hope Coalition, and so I was interested to see what sort of stance they had taken, but they were very critical that the Worcester Public Schools, and their teachers in particular, don't necessarily reflect the student population. Mm-hmm. But it sounds to me like you have faced similar Similar. representation issues here when you came. Have you been following that story at all with the Worcester Public Schools? I have. And again, I think um, I held the job that was responsible for diversifying the Worcester Public Schools before I came here. Um, And even though during my tenure, the um, racial diversity of the teacher force doubled, it still lags behind the um, the workforce and definitely b- below the um, student demographic. Um, that is similar here. Um, it's an ongoing effort, and, and um, the first year that I was hired, um, the new faculty were 30% faculty of color, but that still doesn't change the overall racial composition of a, of a workforce over, you know, in a very short period of time. It takes a long time. And what I think people misunderstand is that they believe that the workforce should look like the student body. That's not realistic because they're not eligible for employment yet. Um, so you, your goal is the labor market, not the student body. Um, and both institutions will always have to work really hard and invest significant resources in order to even come close. I think I was oversimplifying it, so that's a, a really interesting stance to look at it. Right, so you're saying to be proportional to the workforce, right, as opposed to... Yeah, I hadn't thought body. of it that way. That is fascinating. And I think there's like a study, too, that has shown that, especially with teachers or public school teachers, that... Um, a student of color is much more likely to become a teacher themselves if they have a teacher that like reflects them or re- like is representative of their demographic as a child, right? And so it's it's like a cycle. It is a process. I know one of the sound bites yesterday had to do with Maureen Benenda, the superintendent who you probably didn't work under in the Worcester Public Schools, is that right? We were peers. You were peers because she was a principal at the time Correct. and you were in the admin office. Correct. And one of the things that she said that I think has been thrown around a lot, but the quote was, I have never in all my 43 years heard a teacher or administrator speak in a way to a student that would be racist towards students. And the students were very upset about that. Has somebody picked up your reins in the HR position to continue the work that you started in the Worcester Public Schools? Well, when I left the Worcester Public Schools, I was the... um human resource manager. So I was replaced as the human resource manager, um, but 
you know, I come from the, from the world um, from a um, relatively different point of view. I was educated in the Worcester Public Schools. I'm a graduate of South High School. Um, I was the founder of the Worcester Future Teachers Academy whose goal it was to diversify the um, student body. And that program is actually housed um, at South High where Maureen Benenda was the principal. Um, and so this is not a new effort. It's not a new initiative. Um, and I don't know who's doing what, um, but I'd like to think that I'm a tough act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, too. And I was so, so impressed by the panel that was hosted at YWCA on International Women's Day. And I saw you moderate a bunch of really strong women in business, and you were speaking about the gender pay gap. So it was based around an article by Grant Welker. And I did go to Brad after and I said, excuse me, Mr. Kane, I know I do some uh, freelance work for you, but it would be great if this series could have a female writer next year. And um, he said, well, we'll try to afford you, which I thought was <laughs> very poignant given the conversation. Yes. Um, but the, the article led off this year, and it had been a follow-up. This is a series, and it's something they're tracking. He said, any executive looking to make a high salary in central Massachusetts would need a mix of hard work, intelligence, and opportunity. As it turns out, most of those opportunities have gone to men. Only one of the top 10 highest paid executives in the region last year was a woman and only four of the top 40. Male executives don't just make substantially more than their female counterparts in central Massachusetts. They nearly double them. Um, and I was curious what your takeaways were from the panel and also what you make of that and how we can move forward from it. It's, it's really unfortunate, having been in this business of hiring people for, for many years. It's very easy to see how this this pattern perpetuates itself. Um, and so I'm very pleased to see the Equal Pay Act um, come into play that prevents hire, hiring managers from basing the salary that they offer on the salary that an individual less, last held, because women generally are paid less. Um, and my experience has shown that women um, negotiate less. Um, and so that's something that we have to really fight hard. We need to do our homework, and we need to ask for the top dollar and, and, and not be apologetic um, because um, I think that article talked about how um, men apply for jobs confidently that they're not even qualified for. Mm -hmm. And we apply for jobs that we are qualified for and emphasize the area where we are less experienced. So um, we have got to learn from that example, and, and employers have got to pay us for the work that we do, not based upon what we once made or what, what we last made, but based upon the value of that work to their organization. So I think we're, we're poised to close that gap, but you know those top executives, those, that's, that's hard to imagine how we can break into that, into that arena. Yeah, there's, and you spoke about how men apply more confidently for positions, and there's um, the Dunning-Kruger effect is the name for that, where people misassess their competence, or rather their incompetence, and they say, okay, like, I am actually better at this than everyone else, where that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. And so that, it takes away from their ability to analyze their own performance, because they think that they can just enter whatever like workforce or whatever position they they'd like to to seek, um, and so a lot of times 
women have the opposite where we have like imposter syndrome, right? Where we think to ourselves, am I faking what I'm good at? Or like, am I just, am I a total, you know, like a total puppet and not actually like competent in my position? And so it's like this strange imbalance. And how do you counter that? Right. I think we have to do our homework and and ask for what the position is worth and and put the self-doubt aside when we're going for jobs. Now, you had mentioned during that panel as well, and Linda Cavioli emphasized this with us when we interviewed her for this podcast, but it's not just about gender, it's also about race. And white women and Asian women, she said, were impacting the average salary um, and the stats that we look at when we compare the the gender to salaries. Can you speak a little bit to that? She especially said that it shouldn't necessarily fall to women of color to advocate for themselves in meetings um, where they're in the minority, that they needed white allies. And I was a little taken aback and I said, oh, is that the right thing to say? And she got a resounding applause. But I was hoping that you could explain to me that statement and the thinking behind it. Well, Linda Cavioli is one of my role models. So um, far be it from me to explain um, her point of view, but I admire her, her bold, courageous and she comes to it from her position of some privilege because she is a white woman fighting for all women, especially for women who she thinks voices are not um, heard. And so um, I, I appreciative um, for her. And I, and I don't know if this came out during the panel, but um, Linda Cavioli um, was one of the people who encouraged me to run for public office. She actually was my campaign manager. Um, and she had no experience at all. And she and some other um, community organizers convinced me that it was the time for me to run and, and that they would support me through the process. And so I am an advocate for everyone. And so I think, yes, you don't rely upon anybody to advocate for you. However, I know that sometimes it is perceived by, by the majority community that you're whining and that you're complaining and that you, you know, you, you think that they have it so easy when they don't. And, and because Linda is a perfect example, she comes from a working class family, but she still knows because she's white, she has additional privilege, but she's working class, worked hard for everything she has. Um, but she's so self-aware and so community oriented that I think she's a good role model for us all. Yeah, I would agree with that. I it's funny. I had re- I was kind of reading about your background a little bit, and when I saw that, it said like her campaign manager Linda Cavioli. I was like, oh, wonderful! I was so excited, and I was I didn't know if she had experience organizing in that way. That's that was what surprised me too. Um, how old were you when you first ran for public oh, we're gonna, office? We're gonna go age, huh? Oh, we're gonna go I'm age, curious, huh? I, I was in my 30s. You were in your 30s, yeah. Well, I didn't need an exact age because I'm getting to a point. I, I did a lot of political work um, when I was a little younger, and now I keep hearing it's and we it's true. Like women need to be running for office and need to be just like stepping up and doing that. And so I'm very curious about your background, having run for a city council because you were not you were you, were you an organizer previous to that? no i had i had zero experience but i yeah. love community yeah. and i enjoy public speaking yeah and you were a lawyer right yes, yes. i still am right <laughs> <laughs> i paid my bar fees you're still still a lawyer <laughs> um, so we always end with a little game and yes. i have a question about the bar exams okay, okay. uh oh <laughs> so you were encouraged by a lot of women around you to run for office and men and and, 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 and white men yeah so 
It was a it was yeah. a great team of right, grassroots right. organizers kind of together. Yeah, Absolutely. you were the first African American woman elected to the Worcester City Council. What were the issues that you were facing at that point in time, and have you noticed any of them? Any changes in what the, in what the city council faces now, or is some of it kind of the same? Again, I think it's an ongoing process. Yeah. You know, we're always dealing with the same issues. We're dealing with, you know, um, education as the way out of poverty, um, jobs as as the economic developing um, driver of our community, um, trying to build community that is not divisive but is inclusive. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think the issues remain the same. I think that the, the climate um, is is unfortunately less respectful. Um, it's different. It is. It is. It's brutal. It's very and difficult. That's what I worry about. I say, oh, if I ever ran for office, would I be willing to have my name dragged through the mud, my family's name dragged mm-hmm. through the mud, and all over the internet at that? And then I wonder, well, that could be happening right now anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? So how much did you feel like you were putting your loved ones at risk by putting yourself out there? I didn't think about it at the time until it started to, to happen, but it was nowhere near the way it is now. Um, you know, there was one issue that I think became the most heated and, you know, surprise, surprise, it was about putting a gun range on Grafton Street next to an elementary school. Mm-hmm. That seemed to get the most fallout, and it was just a, a sort of a, a, something that came up. It wasn't a part of my platform. You know, I'm not against the Second Amendment or anything like that. It was just, you know, we didn't really want people practicing guns yeah. and having guns right next to a school. Um, seems but, fair. But that, but that, you know, had the biggest, um, the biggest outlaw from people that I don't know. They took offense to even having that come up as a topic, but I, I really hadn't thought about it. Um, I think you cannot be, you cannot be afraid. You have to you have to be willing to stand for what you believe and what the people need you to stand for, regardless of the um, the ramifications to you and your family. And your family has to be a part of it. They have to know ahead of time that this is going to come up and that they are willing to take the hits with you. Um, because the the people with less power and and um, resources are taking the hits every day, and so if you're in a position where you get to be a representative, that means you have a little more access to resources than they do, and and I think that's our responsibility to to stand up for people. Yeah, and I think that's even happening currently, like in a, in the federal government where. We have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilan Omar, who are congresswomen who seem to be there, you know, they're of minority backgrounds, they uh, speak their minds, and they seem to be the ones, like you said, who are taking the, who are really taking the hits and who need people to come from behind and stand with them and show solidarity because, because they are not white people or not white men they're the ones who are being sort of dragged through the mud for expressing things that, frankly, people have said before um, and not taking the same amount of flack for. Now, what advice do you have for young women who are interested in running for local office? Um, I think go for it, number one. Go for it. Um, do your homework. Find out um, what the what the availability of vacancies are. And also, something that I didn't know is... Just because it's not a vacancy doesn't mean it's a vacancy. Um, doesn't mean it's not a vacancy. When I ran for city council, someone had retired, had stepped down, and so there was one vacancy. Um, but three new people won seats. Right. Because every seat is a vacancy. 
and you campaign for what you believe, not against other people. That's another thing. And that's the climate that I'm not um, a fan of that I see now where people are, are targeting people and, and having these negative campaigns. I think that is divisive and, and not the way we want to run our, 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 our city and our government. Um, so know what you believe in and stand for it and be willing to take the hits for it. But it shouldn't be against people. It should be for things that will help people. Mm-hmm. So your job title right now is so expansive. I'm going to say it again. Let's see. We've got Assistant Vice President for Human Resources, Payroll, Affirmative Action, and Equal Opportunity. And that's a lot. Um, How have you built cohesiveness among all those roles? Um, Well, I'm very fortunate. I have a great team. And so I have a human resource director. I have a, um, I soon will have a a new director of diversity and inclusion and equal opportunity. That position is currently vacant. I have a phenomenal payroll director. um, And I have a great um, executive cabinet that I sit on with the president and the CFO. And um, we work as a cohesive team. Um, I think as long as you understand the big picture, that, that Worcester State University is a public resource. It is a department of the Commonwealth um, whose purpose is to serve the community and to educate students um, who, who want to be contributors to our community. Uh, most of our students come here and they graduate and they actually stay in the area. Um, and contribute to the economic development in our, in our community, like Renee King, who's going to be our commencement speaker um, from um, Queen's Cups. So it's, it's a privilege um, to, to be in this position and to be a part of this work. The trust that the Commonwealth places on all of us as public servants and me in my role here um, involved with, you know, making sure that our workforce is actually doing what needs to be done to serve, to serve the university um, is an honor. It's funny, I don't often think of myself as an alumnus. Is that right? Alumna? Alumna. Alumna. (laughs) Uh, But I just finished my second master's. I was like going to school at night, and I got my principal's license from Worcester State. But I wasn't actually here on campus. What they did was set us up with all these acting and former superintendents who have the work experience so that we now have all these relationships throughout central Massachusetts. And it's kind of done exactly what you said. I built a network, and it made me feel job ready, you know? Good for you. You did that through the Center for Effective Instruction? That's right. Yes, it's wonderful. I know our our, um, Worcester Public Schools former Deputy Superintendent, Dr. Stephen Mills, is in charge of that. Um, And it's a a wonderful, important resource to the community. Yes, he's so kind, too. Um, He was my superintendent when I was a student at the Worcester Public Schools, so I kept calling him Dr. Mills, and eventually he goes, Sarah, you got to call me Steve. (laughs) But, yeah, he was a wonderful advisor for me. Mass Foodies curates exclusive events and publishes thought-provoking content for the food-centric person. When asking yourself where to eat tonight, turn to MassFoodies.com to see what's happening in the Massachusetts food scene. That's MassFoodies.com. So we typically end our episode with a little game, some would-you-rathers from pop culture. So (laughs) if you would be so kind, um, let's see. The first one says, oh, and... 
we get them from our friend who actually works at the state house, and she realized that all of her political colleagues were just not keeping up with pop culture. And she said, oh, no. cultural capital is like multifaceted, you know, to be able to talk to as many people as possible. Pop culture knowledge is important too. So she sends out a newsletter every week called Heartbeat, and you can all subscribe to it by emailing S-L-O-A-L-I-H-A-R-T at gmail.com. <laughs> so this week, our friend Allie from Heartbeat wrote, Netflix and Beyonce announced this week that the Pop Queen's famous 2018 Coachella performance will be available on the streaming site on April 17th. That's today. I'm going to go home and watch it. According to a statement, Homecoming, a film by Beyonce, will be interspersed with candid footage and interviews detailing the preparation and powerful intent behind her vision. The movie traces the emotional road from creative concept to cultural movement. With her performance in 2018, Beyonce shattered ceilings as the first black woman to headline Coachella, which has become the preeminent festival in recent years. So my question for you is, would you rather attend a private screening of this film with Beyonce or perform as one of her dancers on her next tour? And we'll say, like, you can keep up. You have plenty of practice. I mean, I know I would need plenty of practice. (laughs) Molly probably wouldn't, actually. She's pretty talented. I'm not... I'm not that good at choreographed dancing unless it's tap. <laughs> I, otherwise, yeah, I'm good at dancing on my own, but like I'm not I'm not a great <laughs> not the greatest choreographed dancer. So what do you think? One on one screening with oh. her, you get some FaceTime, or are you gonna work for the queen? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that I would love to be at the screening, right? But it's like it's a really like it's a once in a lifetime thing to be like I danced on stage with Beyonce. So I don't know. Draw. <laughs> I choose drugs. I don't think I've ever done that before. I think I'm going to go experiential. I know yeah. I would embarrass myself, but I'm going to be one of her yeah. dancers. <laughs> I think that's a good choice. What do you think? What do you think? One-on-one all the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, she also dropped the uh, live album that accompanies that film today. It's available on, uh, to stream anywhere. So it's on it's on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, etc. It's on Spotify, which I checked because I use Spotify. I don't use Tidal or any of those, which they usually um, Jay Z and Beyonce tend to keep their music there. And I double checked Spotify, and it is there. So if you want to hear the whole, and there's a couple bonus tracks, a couple new songs too. Oh, and this reminds me too. After Childish Gambino's Coachella yeah. set, they came out with a movie. He and Rihanna. Yeah, and I watched it yesterday, and it's beautiful. It's almost like an hour-long music video, but it's, it's got a, gua- a nice little Guava Island. Yes, yeah. it's got a plot as well, so you know it captures <laughs> your attention. But there's delicious little bits of music throughout. Excellent. But Rihanna never sings a word. Interesting. Mm-hmm. He's so talented, though, Donald Glover. Mm-hmm. AKA Childish Gambino. He's like, he can do everything. <laughs> okay, so this next one is my, my bar exam question. Kim Kardashian West, who graced the cover of Vogue for their May issue, detailed her time studying for the bar exam in California. She's been working for the past year with a San Francisco law firm as an apprentice in lieu of going to law school. She's been studying for 18 hours a week. The reading is what really gets me. It's so time-consuming, Kardashian West told Vogue. The concepts I grasped in two, in two seconds. She's aiming to be a criminal lawyer, lawyer as early as 2022. While this may come as a shock to many, if you've been keeping up, you know that Kim Kardashian West has had an interest in criminal law and used her passion to get President Trump um, to commute Alice Marie Johnson's life sentence for a nonviolent drug crime. California is one of four states that allows for apprenticeships with law firms instead of going to law school before taking the bar exam. So 
I'm curious on a serious standpoint, like as an attorney, would you like her to pass or fail? Because it almost seems like she's not going to law school. I don't know. What, what do you, what's your preference? Do you want her to be successful in this endeavor? You know, it doesn't seem fair, right, that she should be able to pass the bar exam without going to law school. Yeah. However, so what? Um, you know, if she wants to study and, and, and try to be an attorney, her influence alone could open so many doors as it did in that case. It wasn't her knowledge of the law. It was her influence and in her, in her fame and notoriety. So um, I don't pull against people. So good for you, Kim. Go for it. Yeah. And I think, too, I mean, I think if she puts the work in and she passes, then that says that says a lot about, you know, her capability and what she, you know, put into it, right? Like she could take it and fail and everyone would say, okay, you know, whatever. We all thought that was going to happen. But if she puts in that work and she does all the reading and does her apprenticeship, I didn't know that about California actually. Um, then, you know, then that's it. Right. Um, and people forget too, that her father was an attorney. And so that I'm sure it's, is part of her interest as well. And the exam I would assume is a blind objective score, you know, so... I hope so. I hope so. so. Standardized testing can be, I suppose, right? Can I ask, though, 18 hours a week, is that enough to study for the bar exam? Well, that's not, I don't think that's her studying for the bar exam, right? That's her doing her her, um, substitute for law school, right? It says she's been studying 18 hours a week. I wonder if maybe they mean, that's what they mean by it. I don't know. That's ambiguous. I'm not sure, um, but I know that when you're studying for the bar exam, you really need to put your head down and do nothing else. And so I don't know that you could study for 18 hours and then go to Paris and then come back and study for 18 hours and go to... Three children running around. Well, she has nannies and lots of staff, so I think her, you know, she's she's well attended. But I just don't know if she's giving it her her undivided attention. When you're studying for the bar exam, I think you get, you become a little weird. You're just, you're just all about those fact patterns and, and the law, and I think you're supposed to be. Right. Um, and I wonder, too, though, if that's why she's giving her that herself that time where she says, like, by 2022, you know, three or so years away, maybe it's like, I'm not going to do it tomorrow, but... That's what it sounds like to me. That sounds like she's that's her law school. She's doing 18 hours a week, and that's her law school. That's what it so. sounds like to yeah. me, but I don't know. My last question for you. A lot of wealthy entrepreneurs have stepped forward to help rebuild no, I keep going Notre Dame, but I mean Notre Dame Cathedral <laughs> following a devastating fire. It's that Jesuit education I yeah. had, you know. Um, according to Salon, the Walton family is the richest family in the United States and heirs to the retail juggernaut Walmart. They command as much money as the bottom 41% of all Americans combined. Their legacy is widely viewed as a grotesque business model that depends on pushing down wages and sinking living standards for millions of Americans. Would you rather the Walton family sponsor the renovation of Notre Dame Cathedral with complete historical accuracy and call it the Notre Dame Walmart Cathedral? Or have the rebuild efforts come up short on funds to the detriment of the original structure? So the architecture wouldn't be the same. Can the community, like, help build it? For this, would you rather? No. Okay. Yeah. I have to clarify. Either we get Notre Dame as everybody remembers it on their nostalgic trip, Mm. you know, that kind of thing, and it it looks just the same, but it's named after Walmart, or you get, like, I don't know, a damaged version. I think that you go with the integrity of of the... the place, right? 
Mm-hmm. I think you have to. And so the fire space. is part of its history now? Yeah. And, you know. What, what do you think, Stacey? That's a great question. That's a great question. But, um, you know, the, to me, the, the silver lining is that this Walmart cathedral is not in the United States. And so <laughs> I just, how do you say Walmart in French? So go for it. Walmart. <laughs> You're right. It might just sound... Have to change the emphasis. Yeah. Walmart. The, the T will be silent. <laughs> So is there anything that you haven't had a chance to share yet that you would definitely want our listeners to know about Worcester State uh, or about being a strong professional leader, a strong professional female leader in the city of Worcester? Um, I just would like to encourage women to know, um, for us to remember our value, to recognize our value, proclaim it, call it, because if we don't, no one will. So don't be shy when it comes to your own personal branding. Know your worth and and make sure everybody else respects it. I think that's a message we can second. Yes, we'll get behind that (laughs) Very much, yeah. Do we have a Rosie report this week? Oh, yeah. All right, so (laughs) do you know about Rosie O'Donnell's recent connection to the city of Worcester? I do not. So she happens to be engaged to a Worcester cop, and she is the only woman on the mounted unit. So you've probably seen her riding her horse around City Hall. And they got engaged, yeah, almost a year ago now. Yep. And yeah, they've been together for a good amount of time. It's so we we like to check up on her, and Molly follows her every move on social media in hopes that someday she'll come on. Pop we it. want her to come on the show because you know mm-hmm. we think she's a she's a hero and an icon. Yes, and we did have somebody reach out who's very close to her fiance and say she's aware of the show. We're we're working on it. We're working on it. Um, so Rosie's been busy. She attended the opening of the revival of Oklahoma, which I want to see also. Um, they really, they really changed it up. They have a, a whole new, interesting, diverse cast. It's kind of a really cool take on that show. Um, she got a really short haircut that looks great. I think because Smilf got canceled, that was the show that she was on on Showtime. So she got a cool haircut. It's really short now, and it's all gray. She had kind of been going gray for a while, so that was exciting. Um, and then she also put posted a picture of herself with Frankie Shaw, who is the creator, um, showrunner, and star of that show, Smilf, that was on Showtime that got canceled, um, and Sherry Renee Scott and Ali Sheedy friends of theirs and um, some of their castmates, and she basically asked Netflix to pick up the show, which I thought was funny. So so yeah. there's no bad blood there. That's interesting. Uh, I, she has been a, a staunch supporter of Frankie Shaw, um, who did run into some production issues and some issues with labor on set as, a, as an unseasoned executive producer and showrunner. But yeah, she's been a, she's been a really big supporter of her. Well, Rosie, come on, pop it. <laughs> yes. Stacey Luster, thank you so much for coming on our show. We really appreciate it. Yes. Yes. And I hope that we continue this relationship. Thank you so much. I feel um, more cool and hip just because I was in the room with you. So thank you. You're not the first to have said that, actually. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I have been Sarah. I have been Molly. And this has been Pop It. See ya. Mass Foodies curates exclusive events and publishes thought-provoking content for the food-centric person. When asking yourself where to eat tonight, turn to MassFoodies.com to see what's happening in the Massachusetts food scene. That's MassFoodies.com.